everyone. I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today we're going to be talking about the case of the Snapchat killers. Okay, so we're back in the UK with today's case. And this case does involve social media. Hence the name, the Snapchat killers. Now the offenders in today's case shared some awful things on Snapchat during their crimes. And it really is just absolutely awful and shocking to do what they did anyway, but then to share it on social media is absolutely disgusting. But there is one other reason why today's case has been given the name, the Snapchat killers. And that is because we don't actually know the identity of the perpetrators in today's case, which I know sounds absolutely crazy. It's like, how do we not know the identities of these people? So today's case is definitely a strange one to cover. But the reason we don't know the identities of the perpetrators in today's case is because the offenders are children. And because they were so young at the time of their crimes, the UK justice system decided their names should not be released. And this actually does happen a lot with child offenders in the UK. Now, there are obviously some exceptions to that because we do know the identities of some child perpetrators in the UK. But for the most part, when the offenders are under 16, we don't always know their identities. And that is what today's case is. And I've got to say that this case is just so terribly sad all round. The acts committed in today's case are absolutely awful and it really does highlight things that have just gone wrong and it leaves you wondering what more could have been done to prevent cases like today from happening. So I do need to warn you, some of the events in this episode will not be easy to hear. Obviously, the perpetrators in this case are children, which that in itself is not nice to hear, but the victim in this case is also incredibly vulnerable. So with all of that being said, let's just jump in. So this case is a little bit of a weird one because we actually don't know the offenders' names because the offenders are 13 and 14 and under UK law, their identities are protected. So we don't really know too many personal details about the offenders. Like we don't know their date of birth. We don't really know anything that could link back to like figuring out who they are. However, to make it a little bit easier, the two girls have been given placeholder names. So we have Olivia for the older girl and Yasmin for the younger girl. And it's really easy to remember which one is which because we have Olivia O for older girl Yasmin Y for younger and I don't know if that is just a weird coincidence or it was done on purpose I would imagine it was done on purpose but it does make it easier to know which one's which so the two girls are extremely young the older girl is only 14 and then the younger girl is only 13 it's so so young and today's case does take place in Hartlepool which is in the north of England so at the time of this case Olivia and Yasmin were both in school together I assume they were in the same school year but obviously we don't know but they first met when they were in primary school so they had known each other for a very long time I mean they were only 13 and 14 but they had known each other for most of their lives and straight away they just became inseparable they just became so close they both had very troubled childhoods and it's said that they bonded over this and the two girls were truly best friends they felt like they had no one but each other they were constantly posting on Facebook like how they were like just so close they were together through thick and thin they were partners in crime so we don't know too much about the girls background but we do know 
know that they were both physically abused by their biological parents. And at the time of this case taking place, they were both in the care system. Olivia was living in a children's residential home and Yasmin was living with a foster family. Both girls had started to experiment with drugs and alcohol from an extremely young age, 11. Both girls were 11 when they started to drink alcohol and experiment with drugs, which is just, that's just so young. No child at the age of 11 should even be thinking to turn to any kind of substance to cope with their childhood. But this is what the girls did. They were also both known to be sexually active from a very young age. And they both also had a little bit of a reputation of just being the school bullies. They were quite well known for their violent behavior, let's just say. They would also skip a lot of school as well. And even though they both had quite violent characters, it was Olivia that was probably the more volatile out of the two and Olivia was receiving therapy and anger management and this was because she attacked one of her care workers and that is the full extent that I know. I don't know what she did, I don't know. I just know that she attacked a care worker and both Olivia and Yasmin were always just seen roaming the streets, drinking alcohol, causing trouble and obviously Olivia and Yasmin are underage. They can't buy alcohol themselves so they would wait around outside of shops and ask strangers to go in and buy alcohol for them. And this is how Olivia and Yasmin met a woman named Angela Wrightson. Angela Wrightson was born in the mid 1970s. I think it was like 74 or 75. We don't know the exact year. And she was born in the town of Darlington. Angela also had quite a troubled life. She had a very troubled childhood and she started drinking alcohol from a very young age as well. And she also spent pretty much all of her childhood in the care system. So a very similar childhood to Olivia and Yasmin which I think is pretty significant, so hold that thought. Angela's drinking soon got heavier and heavier as she got older and moved into her adult life. And it wasn't long until Angela was just completely dependent on alcohol. And this had such a huge, significant impact on her whole entire life. And she ended up living a pretty unstable life. And this caused her to pick up quite a detailed criminal record. Most of the crimes that she committed were just petty. There were lots of alcohol, like drunken disorderly offenses that she had. And at one point she was actually banned from buying alcohol for two years, which I don't know how you can really ban someone from buying alcohol for two years. So I don't know if it did work or not. I don't really know how you can ban anybody from buying alcohol because if someone wants something that badly, they're going to be able to get their hands on it. But the police did warn the local shopkeepers and said that they shouldn't sell alcohol to Angela. And if they did, and if they were caught, they would be fined 500 pounds. I think she even made the local news for this as well, which is just weird. Weird. I don't know why, why is somebody making the news for an alcohol ban, but um, whatever. So Angela did spend some time in prison and it's actually said that Angela preferred prison life to everyday normal life outside of prison. Angela just found prison life just a lot easier. Like the decisions were taken out of her hands. Like there was just a routine that she had. She had no routine when she was out of prison. And a lot of Angela's problems were to do with alcohol. So being in prison just helped her a lot. She even got a job when she was in prison. She worked in the laundry room. Don't really know what she did, but this was like one of the happiest times that she ever had. She actually felt like she had responsibility and she had a job and she just really enjoyed it. And I think the thing that Angela enjoyed the most about prison was the sense of community. The fact that she was always surrounded by people. I mean, you get zero privacy when you're in prison. And Angela was an extremely lonely person. She craved company and being in prison, you are surrounded by people. And she did become institutionalized. She didn't really know how to live outside of prison. She just preferred prison. It was easier. So after leaving prison in 2011, which is three years prior to when this case takes place, I'm pretty sure that that was the last time she left 
present. She decided when she left that she wanted to make a fresh start of her life. She wanted to move somewhere new. She wanted just a clean slate. So she moved from Darlington to Hartlepool. And at this point, when she moved to Hartlepool, she was 36 years old. There's not really much details about this, but she did get a boyfriend. I don't really know if she moved to Hartlepool with her boyfriend. I don't know where they met. I don't know. But she did move in with her boyfriend when she was in Hartlepool. And things were finally looking good for Angela. Things were finally like going great. And this is the happiest Angela had ever been in her life, living in Hartlepool and living with her boyfriend. But then tragically, Angela's boyfriend passed away from alcohol-related issues. And quite understandably, Angela was left absolutely heartbroken. And from this moment on, her life started to take a downward spiral once more. But Angela's alcoholism became so much worse after her boyfriend passed away. And at this point, she was known to drink nine liters of strong cider a day. And she also gained the nickname of Alco Ange. She spent most of her benefits on alcohol, rarely ever buying herself food. And she lost so much weight. She became a very unhealthy weight. She only weighed six and a half stone so she is tiny and she was just always seen in the corner shop buying alcohol and a corner shop is a British term for a convenience store by the way and I know she was banned from buying alcohol but that was earlier on she's not currently banned from buying alcohol right now and Angela was just known for her volatile and sometimes violent behavior when she was drunk there was one incident where she was seen chasing a young girl with a metal pole Angela also did have a very caring side as well when she was at the corner shop buying her alcohol she would also buy chocolate bars for the neighbor's children and when she would walk home she would post chocolate bars through the letterbox for the children most people that knew her just described her as a lost soul like a lonely person very caring but just incredibly lost something about angela that you should know is that she absolutely loved animals she loved the company of animals and she would sometimes look after a friend's dog every now and again she would look after this dog as much as she possibly could and when she was looking after the dog she again felt so happy because she had company and being around the dog as well and having the responsibility of looking after a dog just made it a lot easier for Angela to manage her drinking and just looking after the dog would give Angela a sense of purpose which is something that she lacked in life but this was just temporary and as soon as the dog went the drinking returned and I've just gotta say like I don't know if this exists, like please tell me if this exists, but it's quite clear that Angela is struggling. She is known to the council. Like shouldn't there be some kind of scheme to give someone like Angela who is able to look after a dog, like give her a dog. There are so many dogs that need a home and giving someone like Angela a dog could truly change their life for the better. Like I don't understand why that doesn't happen. Like please, if it does, let me know. And Angela was still incredibly lonely in her life. She would always try as much as she could to have conversations with people. And she would quite often sit on her doorstep and smoke and just speak to people passing by because she really did just crave company. And Angela's neighbors did think that she was such a kind, friendly person. However, because of all of Angela's problems with alcohol and just her intense loneliness, this did make her extremely vulnerable. 
vulnerable. And so many people, especially the teenagers in the local area, just took advantage of her. Like I've said many times already in this video, Angela craved company. She was so lonely. So quite often, Angela would just invite people into her home in the hopes of just some sort of company, some sort of conversation. And once the teenagers in the local area, not all teenagers shouldn't really put a blanket statement like that, some of the teenagers in the local area, once they realized this, they took this as their opportunity to take advantage of Angela and they just exploited her for their own benefit. Angela's house became a haven for young people to go there and drink alcohol. They realized that they could go to Angela's house and just drink all day and all night and they wouldn't get stopped by the police. They wouldn't get caught because obviously they were underage and they just knew that Angela would just let them in and drink in her house. And not only this, the teenagers that would go to Angela's house would go to Angela's house and also make Angela go out and buy them alcohol to bring back to her house for them to drink. And Angela being so vulnerable and lonely does this. And not only do people just use Angela for her house and for her to buy them alcohol and cigarettes, but they would also steal from her. And not that Angela actually had that much for them to steal, but whenever she did have money lying around, let's just say it wouldn't be lying around for a very long time. Which I honestly just think is just so awful. And I just do feel so sorry for Angela because she's just doing this in the hopes of making friends and having conversation because she's so lonely. And sometimes things in Angela's house would get that out of hand that Angela would have to phone the neighbors to get the neighbors to come around to help her get all of the teenagers out of her house. So we're gonna circle back round now to Olivia and Yasmin because this is basically how they met Angela. They were one of the teenagers that would go to her house, drink in her house and also pretty much take advantage of her, getting her to buy them alcohol and cigarettes. And this is what leads up to the events of today's case, which took place on the 8th of December, 2014. So earlier on in the day of the 8th of December, 2014, Olivia went to visit her mom. Remember, Olivia doesn't live with her mom. She does live in a children's residential home. And when Olivia went to visit her mom, they had quite a big argument. But the argument resulted in Olivia's mom telling Telling Olivia to basically F off and to go kill herself. And not only that, Olivia's mom also handed her prescription drugs to do this. <laughs> I just sometimes can't believe the things that I read. And following this, Olivia did go on to have a drink and drug binge. She drank lots of strong cider and she did also take the prescription drugs that her mom had given her. And I just want to point out, I don't know if Olivia going on the drink and drug binge was directly related to her mom basically telling her to go kill herself because Olivia did used to do this quite often. But I've got to say, it probably didn't help. But I just don't know if it was a direct result of what her mom said. So then Olivia met up with Yasmin. And what is just a weird little coincidence is that Yasmin had also had a little incident with her mom. So Yasmin had tried to meet up with her mom. She tried to go over to her mom and see her, but her mom refused. Her mom was just like, no, too busy, I'm going out. So Olivia has already been drinking and Yasmin also brings a three litre bottle of cider with her. But both girls seem to think that this is not enough alcohol for the both of them. So where do they go to get more alcohol? 
Angela's house. So the two girls arrive at Angela's house. It's around 7.15 p.m. on the 8th of December and the door was just unlocked. So they didn't even knock. They just let themselves in, which was actually quite a common occurrence. Like literally no one respected Angela's boundaries. And once they were there, they took a few photos. They shared them on Snapchat. And these were just the first of many images that they would unfortunately share on Snapchat. The girls also informed Angela, they didn't really ask her, they informed her that Angela needed to go out and get them some more alcohol. And Angela being who she was, obliged. She went and did it happily. So around 7.30 p.m. there's actually CCTV footage of Angela going into the corner shop and buying alcohol. And tragically this would be the last time that Angela would be seen alive. So Angela had returned to the house and then at some point between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. Yasmin shared a picture on Snapchat. The picture showed the two girls sat near Angela, both of them smiling. But Angela, you can see, does not look happy. And even though it's not the best quality photo, you can see that there are marks on Angela's face. She looks quite bruised. She looks swollen. And the caption on the picture says, nah, I don't know what that is in relation to. Um, I don't know. But the bruising and the swelling on Angela's face had been caused by the two girls. And this picture just showed the beginning of the attack on Angela Wrightson carried out by Olivia and Yasmin on that evening. Over the next few hours, Angela's injuries got a lot more serious. Olivia and Yasmin beat Angela with a variety of different objects. And these objects were just various objects that the two girls had found lying around Angela's home. So they used a TV set, a printer, a table leg, a kettle, a shovel, a plank of wood with a screw sticking out of the end. And later, obviously after all of this, blood and skin were found all over the front room, which is where this attack happened. The two girls were just slowly beating and torturing Angela for hours. But somehow Angela had managed to survive this attack. And at this point, even after hours of being beaten and tortured, Angela was still alive. And the two girls weren't just content with beating up and torturing Angela. They also completely trashed Angela's house as well. And it seemed like the attack on Angela and also her home would only ever stop when Yasmin would post something on Snapchat. And then at around 11 p.m., two women turned up at Angela's home. They were actually Angela's drinking buddies and they showed up to drink at Angela's house. And they were knocking on the door, they were banging on the window, but of course, no one answered because this is 11 p.m. right now on the 8th of December. This is the night that the attack happened and Angela has been completely beaten to a pulp. And at this point, Olivia and Yasmin are still in the house and they run to the bathroom to hide from these women. So the two women were getting quite impatient outside and one of them tries the door. And of course we know the door is unlocked and the woman that opens the door pokes her head around the door sees that the house is completely trashed. And she says to the other woman, someone's wrecked Angela's house. You should see the state of it. To which the other woman replied, I don't care. And after that, the woman shuts the door and they both 
leave. And I can't quite help think like this. I can't, I'm not blaming these two women. Of course, they just didn't know that Angela was in her front room, half dead at this point. But I can't help but think that if these two women had called 999, called the police, because at the very least, they realized that Angela's house has been trashed. I can't help but think, would the events of this case taken a different path. So the two women have left now, Olivia and Yasmin are still in the house and it's just after 11 p.m. now and both Olivia and Yasmin decide that they want to leave. So they leave Angela's house, they leave Angela behind and Angela is still alive at this point. So Olivia and Yasmin just go on their merry way and they go and meet up with another friend and they are both completely covered in Angela's blood. So when they meet up with their friend, their friend is like, what is this all over you? Like, what the hell has happened? But Olivia and Yasmin just shrug off these questions and act like nothing has happened. So they hang out with their friend for a while. I don't actually know what they did. And then it is around 2 a.m. So approximately three hours after they left Angela's house. So it's 2 a.m. now and both Olivia and Yasmin decide to go back to Angela's house. And this is just what I can't understand because let alone what they've done to Angela in the first attack, which is completely unforgivable. I don't care what age you are, but they have been away from Angela's house for three hours now. You would think that they would have taken some time to actually process and think about what they have done and that they would start to feel some kind of remorse and guilt. They have zero guilt. They have zero remorse. And they don't go back and help Angela because maybe you thought that. Maybe you thought, oh, are they going back to Angela's house to help her? But no, they don't go back to Angela's house to help her. They go back to finish what they started. So like I said, this is around 2 a.m. and there is CCTV footage showing the two girls returning back to Angela's house. And this time around, the two girls stayed at Angela's house for a further two hours. And it was at this point between the hours of 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. that Angela tragically lost her life. The exact timeline of the attack is not actually known, but based on the blood distribution that was examined at a later date, it was determined that Angela did lose her life when Olivia and Yasmin returned to the house. The blood distribution also showed that Angela had been crouching and cowering in multiple areas of her front room. And it is thought that during the attack, Angela was begging for her life. This attack was so cold, it was so brutal, and it was just such a slow, torturous attack that Angela had to suffer through for hours. Angela had also ended up half naked at some point during this attack as well from the waist down. It's not thought that this attack was sexually motivated in any way. It's just thought that it was done to humiliate Angela. Cigarette ash was also found in Angela's ear. So again, just another thing that the girls did to humiliate Angela. And this is just so hard to even think about, but the attack overall lasted for nine hours and Angela sustained over a hundred injuries. This was not a crime of passion. This was not heat of the moment kind of thing. This was drawn out. And this is just something that I can't wrap my head around. Like these girls, Angela had done nothing to them, but they carried out this attack in such a sadistic way. And they are only 13 and 14. It's 
I don't even know what to say. So this next part of the story really, really infuriates me. So it's 4am and Olivia and Yasmin are getting bored. Yeah, they're bored. I am quite often left completely speechless by some people, aren't I? But I just can't believe they describe themselves as bored after they've just tortured an innocent woman. You're bored. Okay. They also figure out around this time that their carers have probably reported them missing because they haven't come home. So they realize that maybe they should try and get home at this point. So they try and get themselves a taxi, but they couldn't. I don't know why they couldn't. He didn't elaborate any more than that. So what do they do? They phone the police for a lift. I just, I, I can't, like what the actual hell? And apparently this is something that Olivia and Yasmin would do quite often. They would phone 999 and report themselves as missing and that they needed a lift home. Now I didn't realize this was something that you could do. Maybe it's something only children can do. I, I, I don't know, but it's like <laughs> they've just murdered someone and they have the absolute audacity to phone the police for a lift home. So they dialed 999, they reported themselves missing and that they need to be picked up. And there is a recording of this 999 call. Their voices have been distorted, so you can't identify who they are. Even though the whole phone call is like really bad quality and it's really difficult to understand them, you can hear that they're still laughing and joking. It's like you've just tortured a woman for nine hours and you're laughing and joking about this. Hello, can you please? Uh, hang on, just a moment. What have you got to go on? Sorry, you asked. Hello? I just reported myself missing. Have you... Wait, I've just learned to the police know where me and my friend are at. Will you tell me how long we're going to be on freezing the sort of thing we're talking about? Where are you, Suggett Street? Yeah. Stephen, Stephen Street. Pardon? You're in Stephen oh. Street? Yeah. <laughs> What's so funny? No, you're just the funny. <laughs> I'm not being funny. Sure. Right. Well, listen, right, you're in Stephen Street. We'll get somebody along there as soon as we can, all right? I really should not be surprised by human beings at this point, should I? But they actually complain that the police are taking too long to pick them up and that they're cold. So the police didn't actually take that long. They arrive in a police van to pick up the girls. They were clever enough not to wait directly outside of Angela's home. They were still on the same street, but they thought maybe let's not make it too obvious. But I still just cannot get over the arrogance. I mean, if you really think about it, how often does this happen? How often is it that someone murders somebody and then literally phones the police to pick them up from the crime scene. If you really think about it, the police are essentially Olivia and Yasmin's getaway car. And when they are in the police van, they continue to giggle, make a joke about everything. They do take a couple of photos, put them on Snapchat. And one of the captions on the photo that they shared said van again. So the police do drop Olivia back at her residential home and Yasmin back at her foster family's home. The police, of course they don't. They have no idea what has happened to Angela or what these two girls that they've just dropped home 
have done. So the following morning, Angela's landlord went over to the house. And when there was no answer, he did let himself in. And this is when he discovered Angela's body in her front room. And I cannot even imagine what it would have been like walking into that because You've got to remember how sadistic this attack was, how many weapons were used, how many injuries Angela has. And like I said earlier, the blood and skin were found in various areas of that room. Like, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine what it would have looked like. And he found Angela's body just lying on the sofa and she was just completely battered and bruised. She was half naked. Police were obviously called straight away and a murder investigation was opened. And when they were investigating the crime scene, they could figure out that Angela had been struck in 12 different locations in her front room. I mean, Angela, you would assume anyway, would have been moving herself around the living room trying to get away from these two girls. And just to think about the absolute horror that Angela had to go through in her final hours of her life is just truly just heartbreaking. And the police were just so shocked as well as they started to discover the amount of weapons used in this attack, like the amount of weapons that they use, this is not normal. This doesn't happen very often. And I can guarantee you the police were not thinking that a 13 and a 14 year old did this. And it was around the same time on the morning of the next day that Yasmin's foster family found her clothes that she was clearly wearing during the attack because they were covered in blood and Yasmin's foster family phoned the police straight away. And thankfully, it didn't take too long for the police to connect the dots, and they did arrest both Olivia and Yasmin for the murder of Angela Wrightson. So the trial of Olivia and Yasmin took place at Leeds Crown Court, and their identities were obviously withheld from the public because of how young they are, and this is actually done automatically in the UK, and then it's decided after the trial whether their identities should be released or not. And at the trial, both girls did deny murder, and something very predictable, especially from child offenders, is they actually turned on each other in the trial. They both blamed each other for the murder. So Olivia said that Yasmin was the main offender, but then Yasmin said that all she did was take the photos and post them on Snapchat, because obviously there's no denying that she did that. Um, and it was actually Olivia that carried out the attack. Olivia also claimed that she was suffering from a personality disorder, although this has not been diagnosed. And I'm not really too sure what happened with that. I don't know if she did did go through an evaluation or anything, but that was just what Olivia was claiming herself. Another defense that Olivia came up with, which is just, it's gotta take the cake, in my opinion, of one of the worst defenses ever, but she thought that people could only die from cancer. And she didn't realize that the brutal and sadistic attack that they carried out on Angela would actually kill her. That's a load of crap, that's for sure. The defense also claimed that the girls were suffering from childhood stupidity. I mean, they're definitely stupid, but I don't buy that. That's not a defense, okay? And also that the girls were clearly out of control, which again, I agree with. Not a defense though. The defense also argued that both girls were suffering from mental disorders and that they did not intend to kill Angela. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not suffering from mental disorders. I am not saying that at all. But to say that they did not intend to kill Angela is a load of crap. How can you not intend to kill someone when you carry out such a brutal and sadistic attack that lasts for nine hours, that involves like 12 weapons? How can you not intend to kill somebody at minimum? GBH, but GBH within 10, which still carries a life sentence, but whatever, I think it was murder. And also what confirms that they did intend to kill Angela 
is the fact that they went back and carried on their attack because this is when Angela lost her life. And in the end, it was the social media posts that convinced the jury of Olivia and Yasmin's true nature. Not only were the jury shown the Snapchat posts that Yasmin made, they were also played a phone call that Yasmin had made over Facebook to one of her friends. And I just wanna point out that this phone call was in the middle of the attack. And in the phone call, you can hear Yasmin saying things like, go on, smash her head in, bray her, fucking kill her. And remember, Yasmin was the one that used the defense that she didn't do anything, that she just posted things on social media and she wasn't involved at all, but it kind of seems like you were involved. Now, the true account of the night and everything that went down will probably never be known because both girls have never told a true account of what actually happened. However, the evidence found was enough to piece together roughly what happened. And in the end, the jury did find both Olivia and Yasmin guilty of murder. Both of them were crying when they were convicted of murder, but neither one of them prior to this point had shown any remorse cried at all for Angela, felt guilty in any way. No, they were just crying for themselves. When it came to sentencing, the minimum that the two girls could have gotten was 12 years, and this is because of their age. But the judge actually decided to hire this to a minimum of 15 years because of the severity of their crimes. The judge also commented that he believed that both girls were equally responsible for the crime, that they had committed it together, and they had almost each other on and to be honest that makes sense doesn't it because they are children 13 and 14 and that is a very childlike thing to do obviously not murder but children are more likely to do something that is wrong when their friend is egging them on. So after the trial and everything, this is when anonymity comes into question again. Because sometimes at this point, the identities of the child offenders are sometimes released to the public. But it was decided that their identities should still be withheld. However, this was challenged by numerous papers and they said that the identities of the two girls should be revealed for public awareness and safety. But Hartlepool Council did object to this because they were worried about the welfare of the families of the two girls, but also the mental health of the two girls as well. Olivia had tried to take her own life four times during the trial. One of the times was actually on court premises. And if it was not for a member of staff that acted quickly, she might not be here right now. Olivia was currently on two minute visual checks because she was such high risk. And Yasmin during the trial as well was also self-harming. And the anonymity was mainly upheld because of the mental health of Olivia. And obviously if they had released Yasmin's identity, people would have been able to put two and two together and work out Olivia's identity from Yasmin's. So that is why both of them have been given lifetime actually anonymity. It's hard in cases like this on where to place the blame. Um, obviously the girls, but I mean other factors like where does the blame lie? Both girls were known to the authorities and it just seems like they were so badly monitored. Prior to the murder, Olivia was actually described by social services as one of the most volatile young person they'd ever come across. And during the investigation, the police came across drawings that Olivia had done 
during her therapy and anger management sessions. And this drawing that she did, she only did this a few weeks before the murder. She drew an image where one person is stabbing another person. And when she was asked, why did you draw this? She just said, I don't know. It's like, maybe you should have uh, looked into that a little bit more. I also couldn't help but see the similarities between Angela's childhood and Olivia and Yasmin's childhood. I mean, of course, no one could have said how Olivia and Yasmin would have turned out if they hadn't committed this murder, but they were on the same path that Angela was. And my mind always starts ticking at points like this because I always want to try and figure out like what drove someone to commit the crime that they did. And because I couldn't help but see the similarities, I kind of thought like, did they in some way murder Angela out of frustration because they could see that that was going to be their future. They essentially murdered an older version of themselves. And I couldn't help but think, was this why? Was this why Angela was targeted by the girls? Or am I thinking completely too much into it? Am I going too deep? And Angela, because she was so vulnerable, it was just a crime of opportunity. Or maybe it could be a combination of the both. It's actually very common for victims of child murderers to resemble a hated figure from the child's past. And both parents of Olivia and Yasmin were alcoholics. And we know that Angela was as well. So could that be it? I also think that it was pretty significant that on the night of the murder, both Olivia and Yasmin were rejected from their mom. And obviously there is so many other reasons why the two girls could have done this. Both of them quite clearly were struggling. They both had very traumatic childhoods. They had both been drinking on the night of the murder. Olivia was also taking drugs. But regardless of all of this, they still would have known the difference between right and wrong. And they would have known what they were doing to Angela was wrong. The effects of the drugs and the alcohol, if they did play into it, I don't even know if they did, the effects would have worn off. I also think as well, they clearly weren't that out of it because to carry out such a brutal attack for an extended period of time, they clearly had clarity of mind at some point at least. And I just feel so sorry for Angela. Like my heart breaks because she was just a vulnerable, lonely, lost person. And people throughout her whole life just took advantage of her and used her. And that brings us to the end of this episode. There are no updates on this case. So thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of the Criminal Makeup Podcast. And I would really love it if you could leave a review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.